Section 4 of The World's Famous Orations, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 5. On the Principles of His Party by Benjamin Disraeli. Born in 1804, died in 1881, elected to Parliament in 1837, Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1852, 1858 through 59, and 1866, carried the Reform Bill in 1867, Prime Minister in 1868, and again in 1874 through 80, made an Earl in 1876 at the Congress of Berlin in 1878. Footnote. Delivered in Manchester in April 1872, during a widespread discussion precipitated by Sir Charles Dilke's speech at Newcastle in the previous November, denouncing the cost of royalty. Abridged. The result of this discussion was the weakening of the Gladstone ministry then in power, and finally overthrown two years afterward, Disraeli becoming prime minister. Printed here by kind permission of the London Times and Messrs. G. P. Putnam's sons. End footnote. I have not come down to Manchester to deliver an essay on the English Constitution, but when the banner of republicanism is unfurled, when the fundamental principles of our institutions are controverted, I think perhaps it may not be inconvenient that I should make some few practical remarks upon the character of our Constitution, upon that monarchy limited by the coordinate authority of the estates of the realm, which, under the title of the Queen, Lords, and Commons, has contributed so greatly to the prosperity of this country, and with the maintenance of which, I believe, that prosperity is bound up. Gentlemen, since the settlement of that Constitution now nearly two centuries ago, England has never experienced a revolution though there is no country in which there has been so continuous and such considerable change. How is this? Because the wisdom of your forefathers placed the prize of supreme power without the sphere of human passions. Whatever the struggle of the parties, whatever the strife of factions, whatever the excitement and exultation of the public mind, there has always been something in this country round which all classes and parties could rally, representing the majesty of the law, the administration of justice, and involving at the same time the security for every man's rights and the fountain of honor. Now, gentlemen, it is well clearly to comprehend what is meant by a country not having a revolution for two centuries. It means for that space, the unbroken exercise and enjoyment of the ingenuity of man. It means, for that space, 
the continuous application of the discoveries of science to his comfort and convenience. It means the accumulation of capital, the elevation of labor, the establishment of those admirable factories which cover your district, the unwearied improvement of the cultivation of the land, which has extracted from a somewhat churlish soil harvests more exuberant than those furnished by the lands nearer the sun. It means the continuous order which is the only parent of personal liberty and political right, and you owe all these gentlemen to the throne. There is another powerful and most beneficial influence which is also exercised by the crown. Gentlemen, I am a party man. I believe that without party, parliamentary government is impossible. I look upon parliamentary government as the noblest government in the world, certainly the one most suited to England. But without the discipline of political connection animated by the principle of private honor, I feel certain that a popular assembly would sink before the power or the corruption of a minister. Yet, gentlemen, I am not blind to the faults of party government. It has one great defect. Party has a tendency to warp the intelligence, and there is no minister, however resolved he may be in treating a great public question, who does not find some difficulty in emancipating himself from the traditionary prejudice on which he has long acted. It is therefore a great merit in our Constitution that before a minister introduces a measure to Parliament, he must submit it to an intelligence superior to all party and entirely free from influences of that character. I know it will be said, gentlemen, that however beautiful in theory, the personal influence of the sovereign is now absorbed in the responsibility of the minister. Gentlemen, I think you will find there is a great fallacy in this view. The principles of English Constitution do not contemplate the absence of personal influence on the part of the sovereign, and if they did, the principles of human nature would prevent the fulfillment of such a theory. Gentlemen, I need not tell you that I am now making on this subject abstract observations of general application to our institutions and our history. But take the case of a sovereign of England who accedes to his throne at the earliest age the law permits, and who enjoys a long reign. Take an instance like that of George III. From the earliest moment of his accession, that sovereign is placed in constant communication with the most able statesmen of the period and of all parties. Even with average ability, it is impossible not to perceive that such a sovereign must soon attain a great mass of political information and political experience. Information and experience, gentlemen, whether they are possessed by a sovereign or by the humblest of his subjects, are irresistible in life. No man with the vast responsibility that devolves upon an English minister can afford to treat with indifference a suggestion that has not occurred to him or information with which he had not been previously supplied. Gentlemen, the influence of the Crown is not confined merely 
to political affairs. England is a domestic country. Here the home is revered and the hearth is sacred. The nation is represented by a family, the royal family, and if that family is educated with a sense of responsibility and a sentiment of public duty, it is difficult to exaggerate the salutary influence they may exercise over a nation. It is not merely an influence upon manners. It is not merely the way they are a model for refinement and for good taste. They affect the heart as well as the intelligence of the people, and in the hour of public adversity, or in the anxious conjecture of public affairs, the nation rallies round the family and the throne, and its spirit is animated and sustained by expression of public affection. Gentlemen, there is yet one other remark that I would make upon our monarchy, though it had not been for recent circumstances, I should have refrained from doing so. An attack has recently been made upon the throne on the account of the costliness of the institution. Footnote. The speech of Sir Charles Dilke. End footnote. Gentlemen, I shall not dwell upon the fact that if the people of England appreciate the monarchy, as I believe they do, it would be painful to them that their royal and representative family should not be maintained with becoming dignity or fill in the public eye a position inferior to some of the nobles of the land. Nor will I insist upon what is unquestionably the fact that the revenues of the crown estates on which our sovereign might live with as much right as the Duke of Bedford or the Duke of Northumberland has to his estates are now paid into the public exchequer. All this upon the present occasion I am not going to insist upon. What I now say is this, that there is no sovereignty of any first-rate state which costs so little to the people as the sovereignty of England. I will not compare our civil list with those of European empires, because it is known that in the amount they treble and quadruple it. But I will compare it with the cost of sovereignty in a republic, and that a republic with which you are intimately acquainted, the Republic of the United States of America. Gentlemen, there is no analogy between the position of our sovereign, Queen Victoria, and that of the President of the United States. The President of the United States is not the Sovereign of the United States. There is a very near analogy between the position of the President of the United States and that of the Prime Minister of England, and both are paid at much the same rate, the income of a second-class professional man. The Sovereign of the United States is the people, and I will now show you what the sovereignty of the United States costs. Gentlemen, you are aware of the Constitution of the United States. There are 37 independent states, each with a sovereign legislature. Besides these, there is a confederation of states to conduct their external affairs, which consists of the House of Representatives and a Senate. There are 285 members of the House of Representatives, and there are 74 members of the Senate. 
making altogether 359 members of Congress. Now each member of Congress receives 1,000 pounds sterling per annum. In addition to this, he receives an allowance called mileage, which varies according to the distances which he travels, but the aggregate cost of which is about 30,000 pounds per annum. That makes 389,000 pounds, almost the exact amount of our civil list. But this gentleman will allow you to make only a very imperfect estimate of the cost of sovereignty in the United States. Every member of every legislature in the 37 states is also paid. There are, I believe, 5,010 members of state legislatures who receive about $350 per annum each. As some of the returns are imperfect, the average which I have given of expenditure may be rather high, and therefore I have not counted the mileage, which is also universally allowed. 5,010 members of state legislatures at $350 each make $1,753,500, or £350,700 sterling a year. So you see, gentlemen, that the immediate expenditure for the sovereignty of the United States is between £700,000 and £800,000 a year. Gentlemen, I have not the time to pursue this interesting theme. Otherwise, I could show that you have still but imperfectly ascertained the cost of sovereignty in a republic. And now, gentlemen, I would say something on the subject of the House of Lords. It is not merely the authority of the throne that is now disputed, but the character and influence of the House of Lords that are held up by some to public disregard. Gentlemen, I shall not stop for a moment to offer you any proofs of the advantage of a second chamber, and for this reason. That subject has been discussed now for a century, ever since the establishment of the government of the United States, and all great authorities, American, German, French, Italian, have agreed in this, that a representative government is impossible without a second chamber and it has been, especially of late, maintained by great political writers in all countries that the repeated failure of what is called the French Republic is mainly to be ascribed to its not having a second chamber. But, gentlemen, however anxious foreign countries have been to enjoy this advantage, that anxiety has only been equaled by the difficulty which they have found in fulfilling their object. How is a second chamber to be constituted? By nominees of the sovereign power? What influence can be exercised by a chamber of nominees? Are they to be bound by popular election? In what manner are they to be elected? If by the same constituency as the popular body, what claim have they under such circumstances to criticize or control the decisions of that body. If they are to be elected by a more select body, qualified by a higher franchise, 
there immediately occurs the objection, why should the majority be governed by the minority? The United States of America were fortunate in finding a solution to this difficulty, but the United States of America had elements to deal with which never occurred before, and never probably will occur again, because they formed their illustrious Senate from materials that were offered them by the 37 states. We gentlemen have the House of Lords, an assembly which has historically developed and periodically adapted itself to the wants and necessities of the times. What, gentlemen, is the first quality which is required in a second chamber? Without doubt, independence. What is the best foundation of independence? Without doubt, property. The Prime Minister of England has only recently told you, and I believe he spoke quite accurately, that the average income of the members of the House of Lords is £20,000 per annum. Of course, there are some who have more and some who have less. But the influence of a public assembly, so far as property is concerned, depends upon its aggregate property, which in the present case is a revenue of nine million pounds a year. But gentlemen, you must look to the nature of this property. It is visible property, and therefore it is responsible property, which every ratepayer in the room knows to his cost. But gentlemen, it is only visible property. It is generally speaking territorial property, and one of the elements of territorial property is that it is representative. Gentlemen, it is said that the diminished power of the throne and the assailed authority of the House of Lords are owing to the increased power of the House of Commons, and the new position which, of late years, and especially during the last forty years, has assumed in the English Constitution. Gentlemen, the main power of the House of Commons depends upon its command over the public purse and its control of the public expenditure, and if that power is possessed by a party which has a large majority in the House of Commons, the influence of the House of Commons is proportionally increased, and under some circumstances becomes more predominant. But, gentlemen, this power of the House of Commons is not a power which has been created by any Reform Act. From the days of Lord Grey in 1832 to 1867, it is the power which the House of Commons has enjoyed for centuries, which it has frequently asserted and sometimes even tyrannically exercised. Gentlemen, the House of Commons represents the constituencies of England, and I am here to show you that no addition to the elements of that constituency has placed the House of Commons in a different position with regard to the throne and the House of Lords from that it is always constitutionally occupied. Gentlemen, we speak now on this subject with great advantage. We recently have had published authentic documents upon this matter, which are highly instructive. We have, for example, just published the census of Great Britain, and we are now in possession of the last registration of voters for the United Kingdom, 
Gentlemen, it appears that by the census the population at this time is about 32 million. It is shown by the last registration that after making the usual deductions for deaths, removals, double entries, and so on, the constituency of the United Kingdom may be placed at 2,200,000. So, gentlemen, it at once appears that there are 30 million people in this country who are as much represented by the House of Lords as by the House of Commons, and who, for the protection of their rights, must depend upon them and the majesty of the throne. But, gentlemen, the Constitution of England is not merely a constitution in state. It is a constitution in church and state. The wisest sovereigns and statements have ever been anxious to connect authority with religion, some to increase their power, some perhaps to mitigate its exercise. But the same difficulty has been experienced in effecting this union which has been experienced in forming a second chamber. Either the spiritual power has usurped upon the civil and established a sacerdotal society, or the civil power has invaded successfully the rights of the spiritual, and the ministers of religion have been degraded into stipendiaries of the state and instruments of the government. In England, we accomplish this great result by an alliance between church and state, between two originally independent powers. I will not go into the history of that alliance, which is rather a question for those archaeological societies which occasionally amuse and instruct the people of this city. Enough for me that this union was made and has contributed for centuries to the civilization of this country. Gentlemen, there is the same assault against the Church of England and the union between the state and the church as there is against the monarchy and against the House of Lords. It is said that the existence of nonconformity proves that the church is a failure. I draw from these premises an exactly contrary conclusion, and I maintain that to have secured a national profession of faith with the unlimited enjoyment of private judgment in matters spiritual is the solution of the most difficult problem and one of the triumphs of civilization. It is said that the existence of parties in the church also proves its incompetence. On that matter, too, I entertain a contrary opinion. Parties have always existed in the church, and some have appealed to them as arguments in favor of its divine institution because in the services and doctrines of the Church have been found representatives of every mood in the human mind. Those who are influenced by ceremonies find consolation in forms which secure them to the beauty of holiness. Those who are not satisfied except with enthusiasm find in its ministrations the exaltation they require while others who believe that the anchor of faith can never be safely moored except in the dry sands of reason, find a religion within the pale of the church, which can boast of its irrefragible logic and its irresistible evidence. Gentlemen, I am inclined sometimes to believe that those who advocate the abolition of the union between church and state have not carefully considered the consequences of such a course. 
The Church is a powerful corporation of many millions of Her Majesty's subjects, with a consummate organization and wealth which in its aggregate is vast. Restricted and controlled by the state, so powerful a corporation may only be fruitful of public advantage. But it becomes a great question what might be in the consequences of the severance of the controlling tie between the two bodies. The state would be enfeebled, but the church would probably be strengthened. Whether that is a result to be desired is a grave question for all men. For my own part, I am bound to say that I doubt whether it would be favorable to the cause of civil and religious liberty. But, gentlemen, after all, the test of political institutions is the condition of the country whose fortunes they regulate, and I do not mean to evade that test. You are the inhabitants of an island of no colossal size, which, geographically speaking, was intended by nature as the appendage of some continental empire, either of Gauls and Franks on the other side of the channel, or of Teutons and Scandinavians beyond the German Sea. Such indeed, and for a long period, was your early history. You were invaded, you were pillaged, and you were conquered. Yet amid all these disgraces and vicissitudes, there was gradually formed that English race, which has brought about a very different state of affairs. Instead of being invaded, your land is proverbially the only inviolate land, the inviolate land of the sage and the free. Instead of being plundered, you have attracted to your shores all the capital of the world. Instead of being conquered, your flag floats on many waters, and your standard waves in either zone. It may be said that these achievements are due to the race that inhabited the land and not to its institutions. Gentlemen, in political institutions are the embodied experiences of a race. You have established a society of classes which give vigor and variety to life. But no class possesses a single exclusive privilege and all are equal before the law. You possess a real aristocracy open to all who desire to enter it. You have not merely a middle class, but a hierarchy of middle classes, in which every degree of wealth, refinement, industry, energy, and enterprise is duly representative. And now, gentlemen, what is the condition of the great body of the people? In the first place, gentlemen, they have for centuries been in the full enjoyment of that which no other country in Europe has ever completely attained, complete rights of personal freedom. In the second place, there has been a gradual and therefore a wise distribution on a large scale of political rights. Speaking with reference to the industries of this great part of the country, I can personally contrast it with the condition of the working classes 40 years ago. In that period, they have attained two results, the raising of their wages and the diminution of their toil. Increased means and increased leisure are the two civilizers of man. That the working classes of Lancashire and Yorkshire have proved not unworthy of these boons may be easily maintained, 
but their progress and elevation have been during this interval wonderfully aided and assisted by three causes, which are not so distinctively attributable to their own energies. The first is the revolution in locomotion, which has opened the world to the working man, which has enlarged the horizon of his experience, increased his knowledge of nature and of art, and added immensely to the solitary recreation, amusement, and pleasure of his existence. The second cause is the cheap postage, the moral benefits of which cannot be exaggerated. And the third is that unshackled press, which has furnished him with endless sources of instruction, information, and amusement. But now, gentlemen, I want to test the condition of the agricultural laborer generally, and I will take part of England, with which I am familiar and can speak as to the accuracy of the facts. I mean the group described as the South Midland Counties. The conditions of labor there are the same, or pretty nearly the same, throughout. The group may be described as a strictly agricultural community, and they embrace a population of probably a million and a half. Now I have no hesitation in saying that the improvement in their lot during the last 40 years has been progressive and is remarkable. I attribute it to three causes. In the first place, the rise in their money wages is no less than 15%. The second great cause of their improvement is the almost total disappearance of excessive and exhausting toil. From the general introduction of machinery, I do not know whether I could get a couple of men who could, or if they would, would thresh a load of wheat in my neighborhood. The third great cause which has improved their condition is the very general, not to say universal, institution of allotment grounds. Now, gentlemen, when I find that this has been the course of affairs in our very considerable and strictly agricultural portion of the country, where there have been no exceptional circumstances, like smuggling, to degrade and demoralize the race, I cannot resist the conviction that the condition of the agricultural laborers, instead of being stationary, as we are constantly told by those who are not acquainted with them, has been one of progressive improvement, and that in those counties, and there are many, where a stimulating influence of a manufacturing neighborhood acts upon the land, the general conclusion at which I arrive is that the agricultural laborer has had his share in the advance of national prosperity. Gentlemen, I am not here to maintain that there is nothing to be done to increase the well-being of the working classes of this country, generally speaking. There is not a single class in the country which is not susceptible to improvement and that makes the life and animation of our society. But in all we do, we must remember that, as my noble friend told them at Liverpool, that much depends upon the working classes themselves, and what I know of the working classes in Lancashire makes me sure that they will respond to this appeal. Much may also be expected from that sympathy between classes, which is a distinctive feature of the present day, 
and in the last place no inconsiderable results may be obtained by judicious and prudent legislation but gentlemen in attempting to legislate upon social matters the great object is to be practical to have before us some distinct aims and some distinct means by which they can be accomplished gentlemen i cannot pretend that our position either at home or abroad is in my opinion satisfactory at home at a period of immense prosperity with a people contented and naturally loyal we find to our surprise the most extravagant doctrines professed and the fundamental principles of our most valuable institution impugned and that too by persons of some authority gentlemen this startling inconsistency is accounted for in my mind by the circumstances under which the present administration was formed it is the first instance in my knowledge of a british administration being avowedly formed on a principle of violence it is unnecessary for me to remind you of the circumstances which preceded the formation of that government you were the principal scene and theater of the development of statesmanship that then occurred you witnessed the incubation of the portentous birth you remember when you were informed that the policy to secure the prosperity of ireland and the content of irishmen was a policy of sacrilege and confiscation gentlemen when ireland was placed under the wise and admirable administration of lord abercorn ireland was prosperous and may i say content but there happened at that time a very peculiar conjuncture in politics the civil war in america had just ceased and a band of military adventurers poles italians and many irishmen concocted in new york a conspiracy footnote the fenian movement to secure the independence of ireland End footnote to invade ireland with the belief that the whole country would rise to welcome them how that conspiracy was baffled how those plots were confounded i need not now remind you for that we were mainly indebted to the eminent qualities of a great man who has just left us footnote lord mayo who as viceroy of india was assassinated in eighteen seventy two End footnote. You remember how the constituencies were appealed to vote against the government which had made so unfit an appointment as that of Lord Mayo to the Viceroyalty of India. It was by his great qualities when Secretary for Ireland, by his vigilance, his courage, his patience, and his perseverance that this conspiracy was defeated. Never was a minister better informed. He knew what was going on in New York just as well as what was going on in the city of Dublin. When the Finian conspiracy had been entirely put down, it became necessary to consider the policy which it was expedient to pursue in Ireland, and it seemed to us at that time that what Ireland required, after all the excitement which it had experienced, was a policy which should largely develop its material resources. There were one or two subjects of a different character, which, for the advantage of the state, 
it would have been desirable to have settled. If that could have been effected with the general concurrence of both the great parties in that country, had we remained in office, that would have been done. But we were destined to quit it, and we quitted it without a murmur. The policy of our successors was different. Their specific was to despoil churches and plunder landlords, and what has been the result? Sedition rampant, treason thinly veiled. Whenever a vacancy occurs in the representation, a candidate is returned, pledged to the disruption of the realm. Her Majesty's new ministers proceeded in their career like a body of men under the influence of some delirious drug. Not satiated with the spoliation and anarchy of Ireland, they began to attack every institution and every interest, every class, and calling in the country. It is curious to observe their course. They took into hand the army. What have they done? I will not comment on what they have done. I will historically state it and leave it to you to draw the inference. So long as constitutional England has existed, there has been a jealousy among all classes against the existence of a standing army. As our empire expanded and the existence of a large body of disciplined troops became a necessity, every precaution was taken to prevent the danger to our liberties which a standing army involved. It was the first principle not to concentrate in the island any overwhelming number of troops, and a considerable portion was distributed in the colonies. Care was taken that the troops generally should be offered by a class of men deeply interested in the property and the liberties of England. So extreme was the jealousy that the relations between that once constitutional force, the militia, and the sovereign were rigidly guarded, and it was carefully placed under local influences. All this is changed. We have a standing army of large amount, quartered and brigaded and encamped permanently in England, and fed by a considerable and constantly increasing reserve. I will illustrate this point by two anecdotes. Since I have been in public life, there has been for this country a great calamity and there is a great danger. Both might have been avoided. The calamity was the Crimean War. You know what were the consequences of the Crimean War. A great addition to your debt an enormous addition to your taxation, a cost more precious than your treasure, the best blood of England. Half a million of men, I believe, perished in that great undertaking. Nor are the evil consequences of that war adequately described by what I have said. All the disorders and disturbances of Europe, those immense armaments that are an encompass on national industry, and the great obstacle to progressive civilization may be traced and justly attributed to the Crimean War. And yet the Crimean War need never have occurred. The great danger is the present state of our relations with the United States. Footnote. In the matter of the Alabama claims. End footnote. When I acceded to office, I did so 
so far as regarded the United States of America, with some advantage. During the whole of the Civil War in America, both my noble friend near me, footnote, Lord Derby, then Lord Stanley, end footnote, and I had maintained a strict and fair neutrality. This was fully appreciated by the government of the United States, and they expressed their wish that with our aid the settlement of all differences between two governments should be accomplished. They sent here a penny potentiary, an honorable gentleman, very intelligent, and possessing general confidence. My noble friend near me, with great ability, negotiated a treaty for the settlement of all these claims. He was the first minister who proposed to refer them to arbitration, and the treaty was signed by the American government. It was signed, I think, on November 10th, on the eve of the dissolution of Parliament. The borough elections that first occurred proved what would be the fate of the ministry, and the moment they were known in America, the American government announced that Mr. Reverend E. Johnson, the American minister, had mistaken his instructions, and they could not present the treaty to the Senate for its sanction, the sanction of which there had been previously no doubt. But the fact is that, as in the case of the Crimean War, it was supposed that our successors would be favorable to Russian aggression. So it was supposed that by accession to the office of Mr. Gladstone and a gentleman you know well, Mr. Bright, the American claims would be considered in a very different spirit. How they have been considered is a subject which, no doubt, occupies deeply the minds of the people of Lancashire. Now, gentlemen, observe this. The question of the Black Sea involved in the Crimean War, the question of the American claims involved in our negotiations with Mr. Johnson, footnote, Reverdy Johnson, the American minister to England in 1868 through 69, who negotiated a treaty for the settlement of the Alabama claims, which was rejected by the Senate, end footnote are the two questions that have turned up and have been the two great questions that have been under the management of the government. I come now to that question which most deeply interests you at this moment, and that is our relations with the United States. I approve the government referring this question to arbitration. It was only following the policy of Lord Stanley. My noble friend disapproved the negotiations being carried on at Washington. I confess that I would willingly have persuaded myself that this was not a mistake, but reflection has convinced me that my noble friend was right. I remember the successful negotiation of the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty by Sir Henry Bulwer, I flattered myself that treaties at Washington might be successfully negotiated. But I agree with my noble friend that his general view was far more sound than my own. But no one, when that commission was sent forth, for a moment could anticipate the course of their conduct under the strict injunctions of the government. We believed that commission was sent to ascertain what points should be submitted to arbitration, 
to be decided by the principles of the law of nations. We had not the slightest idea that that commission was sent with power and instructions to alter the law of nations itself. When that result was announced, we expressed our entire disapprobation, and yet, trusting to the representations of the government that matters were concluded satisfactorily, we had to decide whether it were wise, if the great result was obtained, to wrangle upon points however important, such as those to which I have referred. Gentlemen, it appears that though all parts of England were ready to make those sacrifices, the two negotiating states, the government of the United Kingdom and the government of the United States, placed a different interpretation upon the treaty when the time had arrived to put its provisions into practice. Gentlemen, in my mind and in the opinion of my noble friend near me, there was but one course to take under the circumstances, painful as it might be, and that was at once to appeal to the good feeling and good sense of the United States, and stating the difficulty to invite confidential conference, whether it might not be removed. But Her Majesty's government took a different course. On December 15th, Her Majesty's government were aware of a contrary interpretation being placed on the Treaty of Washington by the American government. The Prime Minister received a copy of their counter-case, and he confessed he had never read it. He had a considerable number of copies sent to him to distribute among his colleagues, and you remember, probably, the remarkable statement in which he informed the House that he had distributed those copies to everybody except those for whom they were intended. Time went on, and the adverse interpretation of the American government oozed out and was noticed by the press. Public alarm and public indignation were excited, and it was only seven weeks afterward, on the very eve of the meeting of Parliament, some twenty-four hours before the meeting of Parliament, that Her Majesty's government felt they were absolutely obliged to make a friendly communication to the United States that they had arrived at an interpretation of the treaty reverse of that of the American government. What was the position of the American government? Seven weeks had passed without their having received the slightest intimation from Her Majesty's ministers. They had circulated their case throughout the world. They had translated into every European language. It had been sent to every court and cabinet, to every sovereign and prime minister. It was impossible for the American government to recede from their position, even if they believed it to be an erroneous one. And then, to aggravate the difficulty, the prime minister goes down to parliament, declares that there is only one interpretation to be placed on the treaty, and defies and attacks everybody who believes it is susceptible of another. Was there ever such a combination of negligence and blundering? And now, gentlemen, what is about to happen? All we know is that Her Majesty's ministers are doing everything in their power to evade the cognizance and criticism of Parliament. They have received an answer to their friendly communication, of which I believe it has been ascertained that the American government adhere to their interpretation, and yet they prolong the controversy. What is about to occur, it is unnecessary for one to predict. But if this be true, 
if after a fruitless rationation worthy of a schoolman we ultimately agree so far to the interpretation of the american government as to submit the whole case to arbitration with feeble reservation of a protest if it be decided against us i venture to say that we shall be entering on a course not more distinguished by its feebleness than by its impending peril there is before us every prospect of the same incompetence that distinguished our negotiations respecting the independence of the black sea and i fear that there is every chance this incompetence will be sealed by our ultimately acknowledging these direct claims of the united states which both as regards principle and practical results are fraught with the utmost danger to this country gentlemen do not suppose because i counsel firmness and decision at the right moment that i am of that school of statesmen who are favorable to a turbulent and aggressive diplomacy i have resisted it during a great part of my life i am not unaware that the relations of england to europe have undergone a vast change during the century that has just elapsed the relations of england to europe are not the same as they were in the days of lord chatham or frederick the great the queen of england has become the sovereign of the most powerful of oriental states on the other side of the globe there are now establishments belonging to her teeming with wealth and population which will in due time exercise their influence over the distribution of power the old establishments of this country now the united states of america throw their lengthening shades over the atlantic which mix with european waters these are vast and novel elements in the distribution of power i acknowledge that the policy of england with respect to europe should be a policy of reserve but proud reserve and in answer to those statesmen those mistaken statesmen who have intimated the decay of the power of england and the decline of its resources i express here my confident conviction that there never was a moment in our history when the power of england was so great and her resources so vast and inexhaustible and yet gentlemen it is not merely our fleets and armies our powerful artillery our accumulated capital and our unlimited credit on which i so much depend as upon the unbroken spirit of her people which i believe was never prouder of the imperial country to which they belong gentlemen it is to that spirit that i above all things trust i look upon the people of lancashire as a fair representative of the people of england i think the manner in which they have invited me here locally as a stranger to receive the expression of their cordial sympathy and only because they recognize some effort on my part to maintain the greatness of their country is evidence of the spirit of the land i must express to you again my deep sense of the generous manner in which you have welcomed me and in which you have permitted me to express to you my views upon public affairs proud of your confidence and encouraged by your sympathy i now deliver to you as my last words the cause of the tory party the english constitution and of the british empire end of section four recording by tom mack